out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This time is going to be the turn of musician and also engineer John Haskett, who was a member in the Portsmouth bass band, the Cylons. Indeed, we love them then, we love them now. Um, this is the interview um, it's quality chat all the way. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Portsmouth scene is in this interview. Trust me, it really is. We began by talking about a cassette that came out back in 1980. Let's go for 85 or 86. Titled Against the Tide that had been put together by, I do believe, Ian Binnington. And this, by the way, after a bit of chat... <laughs> because we've never met each other before. Just, uh, you know, the usual sort of stuff. We got down to that interesting subject that was the cassette that came out, featuring 28 tracks, including Red Dead Letter Day, The Cylons, obviously, uh, Paul Groovy and the Pop Art Experience, and many more. Anyway, this was John's reply. John, it's over to you. Ian Binnington, really, the, the, the you know, Bite Back Records was, was, would really be in the man because he, he released Against the Tide, didn't he? Yes, that's true. So, yeah. But, but where, yes. Where are you out of then, David? Norwich. We're, I'm based in Norwich land, which was obviously, if you probably played in Norwich, it would be probably the art centre or the waterfront or the UEA. I've I've done many gigs in all of them as a touring sound engineer, which is pretty <laughs> much what my what my job has been for twenty five years. Yes, now, so. yeah. So you've probably seen that yeah. uh, ca- the cavernous place that is the art centre, which is a little bit tricky probably for a sound engineer. Because well, I've had a couple of good gigs there. I seem to remember a particularly good Frank and Walters gig there back in the nineties. So. Yes, yeah. and um, yeah, that was where I mean it was kind of interesting because John Peel was obviously one of the great gatekeepers and then it was the NME and then you had all these clubs around the country that yeah. would put on these kind of indie nights which kept the sort of scene going which was obviously at the time you don't really appreciate it but then you realize afterwards you realized it worked really well because you know you you know because often with bands it's kind of getting played outside your little kind of environment and world and getting to play in front of other people and John Peel was obviously very good and the NME was and the Melody Maker was good for that yeah. so that helped but look the silence obviously you weren't really right there at the very beginning no, of I wasn't no uh, that was Warren Greck was it well I know that uh, well the original lineup I think was um Simon Duffin uh, and Carl and Jack and Keith. Yes, I've got. I've seen Keith, Carl, Jack and Warren um, as the four who started. Yeah. And and produced yeah. by, and it was produced by Jim Shaw from the Cranes, which seemed to be kind of another person who crops up in the band. Yeah, he he produced the album Bug, which I'd been booted out of the band by then. <laughs> <laughs> As you um, do. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah. So there was like an original incarnation of the Cylons, which I think yeah was Simon Duffin, Keith, uh, Warren, and Carl. And I can't remember. I think I'm not even sure whether Carl was a drummer at that point. He 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 played in. A, um, I can't remember the name of the band he played. The punk band he played in at the time. 
and then uh, I started doing sound for the songs. I, I was in a band called Ad Nauseam. Okay. Uh, which was a hardcore band, and I wasn't the original bass player. That that went into, was about three or four incarnations before I joined. Um, I think Admirals are on against the tide as well, are they not? Yes, have a look. I think that could be one of those. Ones. I can't remember if John. Oh, I think, I think yes, be... they are actually on on you side notice... two of the cassette. You have the Cylons, Red Letter Day, Ad Nauseum. Yeah, yeah. Squealer that was on on yeah. the tide. Can't remember now. No, can't see them. But um, there's a there's, there is like twenty eight tracks. No, there isn't. Yeah. Actually, the cranes are on it, and also Paul Groovy, obviously. Yeah. So, um, yes. Yeah. So were yeah. you with your musical world then? You obviously were, had been about a bit before the silence. So what were you? You know, the bass was your instrument. Were you playing anything else before then? No, I I I, I was forced to buy a guitar by my um by my dad because I always wanted to play the bass and my dad sort of said well you can't play a tune on a bass and I was like yeah but I don't want to play guitar and I can't and I so they got me a guitar uh, even to much protest I think my sister was married to a musician a proper musician from up in London who used to work in the clubs and they actually bought me a, a, a cheap guitar and a practice amp and stuff like that yes. and I went for guitar lessons and I still to this day only know three chords I can't can't call change or anything like that. I was absolutely useless at it. Um, and somebody at school, I managed to swap for a bass when I was about 14. Yeah. And, find, and then I just sat in my bedroom and played along to pretty much our house and Echo and the Bunnyman albums con continuously to drive my mother insane. Yeah. And uh, kind of... Then moved over to Portsmouth from the Isle of Wight because I'm from the Isle of Wight originally. I used okay. to play. I used to play in bands from the Isle of Wight. Nothing that really, really got anywhere. Went to the Polytechnic and then sort of got involved in the music scene there and started mixing bands. That's where I met Ad Nauseam because I used to take the local PA into a nightclub called Granny's, which was quite a notorious nightclub at the top of um, a. a, a car park called the tricorn which was uh in portsmouth it was like a 60s concrete monstrosity that i think was voted one of the most amazing bits of architecture and about two months later the most you know the grimmest architecture is very similar to the um the uea yeah it's very similar to the car park in newcastle okay the way they film get carter you know just a big concrete industrial multi-story but it had a nightclub at the top which was called the Tricorn Club in the 60s. And then I think it had some doldrum days. And then when I first moved over, it was called Granny's. And then that closed down and then it was reopened as Basins by a Portsmouth entrepreneur. And that lasted until about 1987. And then that went completely. And the tripod, uh, Tricorn's demolished now. But there's, if you go on online, there's a lot of history about the Tricorn in Portsmouth. Oh, it's interesting because I suppose uh, the UEA was one of those other ones that was part of that brutalist architecture. But there was the, the famous one is, I suppose, the Preston bus station, which was almost going to get knocked down. But they just saved it in time to say, oh, no, it's a work of art now. So I think if things can just survive that... Um, I don't know, the early years, and then it's like, oh, that 
when it's so new, I suppose something can look fantastic, then it looks really bad. And then it sort of becomes yeah. a bit of a historic, you know, heritage site. And I think the Preston bus station has just survived and now is going to be always held as, you know, an amazing place of brutalist architecture. Yeah, well, I, I think the Tricon was just crumbling enough to to almost become a, a you know, a, a health hazard. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yes. But yeah, I mean, it got demolished to, to make a huge John Lewis, and then it's it's now just a flat piece of land, which is a car park. So Nice. That yeah. must be true. So were you, because one thing about coming from dear old Norwich is that our music scene was pretty poor, really. I mean, we had the farmers, buyers, the Higgs and serious drinking, but it didn't really ever go beyond that, apart from a few other little bands here and there, which you have never heard of, probably. Um, so uh, so suddenly you look at Portsmouth, and you think, blimey, there's a lot of tracks there. And obviously everybody seems to be, especially in the 80s, there was so much music kind of coming out. So what, what was this, you know, sort of, you know, and Cherry Red puts out those compilations, there's one on Liverpool yeah. and Manchester recently. So, I mean, was Portsmouth kind of buzzing with kind of young people with great ideas? It, it, it was. It's just um, something weird about Portsmouth is, is you can't get out of Portsmouth. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's uh, it's so few bands have actually done anything in in the, even in the 35 years that I've been here, very very few bands have actually managed to do anything and get anywhere with it. Yeah, you know it's it's like one of those cities that seems to suck you back in. I don't know, I don't know why. It's a it's it's a very well. It's, I suppose it's an island mentality because we are technically an island. Yeah. Um. Once once you get over onto Portsea Island, it's only a like five hundred yard stretch of water, but it's enough to have two bridges go over, and you know, technically be an island. So there is an island mentality. Um. Yeah, it, it, it's just very weird. I mean, we the Cylons thought they would do it because obviously before I joined, they had a pill session and they had a Kershaw session. And, um, you know, it was looking good for them. They used to go up to Alice in Wonderland and do shows and stuff like that. But I think what there is an extreme lack of um, in Portsmouth is anybody capable of managing a band. Right. Getting them to the next level. Okay. Uh, Well, yes, that, that, you know, that's the one thing I've really noticed doing this show is that... um, I mean, most bands have, a, you know, the five-year narrative, which I hadn't sort of appreciated. And, you know, it's like, you know, they, they get together, have 12 years, um, 12 years, 12 months kind of playing. And if John Peel picks it up, you know, that gets a sort of a, sing, you know, a play, which is kind of quite big. Even then it didn't seem it, but now you realise it was quite a number and a John Peel oh. session. And that, that would bounce people onto that first album and then sort of get in with some random dates around the country because most cities had a little indie night or a punky indie alternative night didn't they you know from Norwich to you know Preston to Glasgow to Bristol you know so it kind of kept the scene going it was often when bands hit tried to get the second album or try and actually make any money and that was when things started to go bad (laughs) yeah yeah well I actually saw I actually saw the Farmers Boys in the 80s at the the Poly the Poly was a really good place in the 80s actually Portsmouth Poly I I think I think you, you could end up watching like three or four really good shows shows a week there if you were lucky yes well i uh, think yeah they did they did seem to be that kind of scene which 
you know, and and you know, record sales, you know, you know, were quite big actually. When you sort of realise yeah. now that you know, like a band like the Smiths would sell a hundred thousand, you think, oh, that's kind of okay. But now a top artist might sell sixty thousand. You think, oh my god, they could be number one. You're thinking, blimey, in my day, that, <laughs> that would you would have been scraping into the you know top ten really. So um, yes, it was kind of a bit of a different gig really. So were you? Did it all come together quite quickly? Well, first, you, you obviously ad nauseum, which was kind of a band. That you came into so were you were you a bit of a player on the scene the go-to bass player no i was just <laughs> I, I was the weird bloke from the isle of wight that did sound that everybody as soon as i did sound from and kind of realized that i could play bass and if they booted their bass player out <laughs> i'd end up joining the band it was it's just how it happened with with both bands really um Ad, ad nauseum, I used to take the the, the PA system up to gra- up to Granny's, and and I got to know them. And then uh, the the guitarist sadly departed. Now Brian Barnett died about literally a year ago. Actually, um, his his partner was a friend of my girlfriend at the time, and you know, and then it was just like I got a phone call saying, "Oh, our bass player has left. You play bass, don't you? Could you come and play bass for us for uh, uh, you know until?" And I went, "Yeah." And then that was for two years until the band finally disbanded, you know. So that was that. And then I thought, okay, fair enough. Yes. And I'd do bits and bobs. I'd turn up to local jam sessions, and I wasn't really that that worried, you know. I I, I, I can't write songs. I'm, I'm I'm fine at playing bass in songs. I'm not a particularly good bass player, to be honest. I used to just get by, you know. I used to I, I used to appear to be better than. Than I was, I think. Yeah, but it's interesting because I interviewed a few bass players, Brian Adams and being one, and he, I mean, he just started as a very sort of, you know, not really knowing what he was doing, but sort of just wanted to have a go. And, and you know, which kind of amazed me because then he sort of becomes this kind of like, wow, the, you know, one of those bass players that people get very excited about. And obviously I loved Lemmy from Motorhead, who started as a rhythm guitarist, but then yeah. went over to the bass to be in Hawkwind and then got kicked out of Hawkwind to start Motorhead and, yeah. and created quite an odd sound, you know. Cause I well, literally, literally every bass player I knew at the time wanted to be Jean-Jacques Bernal, you see. Yes, there you go. And oh. I, I I, couldn't. So I, I'd stick with the really simple stuff, you know. I'd, I'd quite happily, you know... Stuff like Bunnyman and 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 stuff like that was quite quite easy to pick up on and copy and learn and stuff, you know. So you know, it was it was nice bass lines, but it didn't have to be too complicated. It wasn't it wasn't too musical, you know. You didn't have to. I never learned a um. I don't think I ever learned a scale in my life. I mean, I haven't played bass in anger since 1993 when the Cylons kicked me out. Anyway, so yes. So was the you know because at that time they'd done a John Peel session, and I guess that would have been and gone before you joined the band. Yeah, that that was before I joined. Um, they did the Peel session. They did the Kershaw session. Um, I think they got signed to Genetics as well, Martin Martin Russian's label. From what I can remember, I mean Keith or well, I mean sadly Carl died last year as well. So yes, Carl, Carl um, you wouldn't be able to uh, chat with Jack. The guitarist isn't a big. You know, he's not particularly bothered as a speaker. So Keith is the fountain of all knowledge on the Cylons, really. Or yeah. Warren, the, the original bass player, the proper bass player, which I call the proper bass player, Warren Gregg. Yes. And so, he, was there, he, was, he was there for all the, the main times of, like, you know, Run to the Stranger, Mockery of Decline, and um, 
even Cylons is golden. In fact, I I helped record Cylons is golden. It was it was record all the drums and everything and and instruments were recorded at a um re- recorded at a local school where well, it was called the Buckland Youth Activity Centre. I went with a couple of friends that also ran a PA that I worked for and um yeah we took the stuff in there and, and recorded it in one of the classrooms and uh, then it was finished off at, at Jack's home studio in his in his bedroom sort of thing. So blimey, it was very DIY. Yeah, very, very DIY. I mean, Jack was one of the few people I knew that had a had an eight track reel to reel, and and you know we'd we'd rehearse twice a week, and once would once a week would be at the Buckland Youth Activity Centre full band, and on a Saturday we'd always go around to Jack's house with the drum machine and um and just write and record demos in in his living room above a above a bike shop I think it was on Albert Road my god it sounds so 80s especially that recording studio because there was a lot of little kind of places that started like that to try and help the unemployment figure or just trying to sort of get people on schemes and stuff really yeah I mean it it wasn't an official studio I mean he's still got all his gear today he still does mastering and stuff if Jack does um, he's got all his kit and um but yeah, there was a few people like um, Simon Pointing from 1288 Cartel, you know, who ended up being uh, Simon Hartfield, the DJ. Yeah. He was, um, he's always had bits and bobs at home and done home recording. Jim Shaw obviously had more than anybody else, you know, because he, he produced all the, pretty much all the Crane stuff himself, I think. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. So what was your time like with the Cylons? Did you kind of get to tour and did you get to sort of record much for this in the studio we did um we did a few i mean we did two singles that we released one was um no choice uh with a b-side called surf song which is a seven inch and that was kind of i, I, I still quite like it as a song it was a I, I did rip the bass line off of passion of lovers a bit from uh by Bauhaus, but uh but I, I like it. I, I still like it as a song. The others kind of wish we hadn't done it. And then we did another um, 12 inch called Sandman, which was uh, recorded at the Crystal Rooms, which probably most of the, or a good 50% at least of stuff on Against the Tide would have been recorded by Steve Hoff at the Crystal Studios. Yes. Um, <laughs> And with touring, did that sort of, did you just have, you know, a set tour? Did you just used to play kind of quite randomly? Never, never toured, never did a proper tour. The most we did was two shows in a row supporting the fall, one in, um, one in Coventry, one night in Coventry and the next night in Bristol. Yes. And then, we, we just, we, we never had an agent. We couldn't get shows really. We were just chase, chasing, constantly constantly chasing our tails yes and then what happened then when when sort of in 93 when when your five years with the band were coming to a close did you know it was sort of coming yeah i mean i'd I'd started touring and doing more shows with other bands as a sound engineer um i think relationships were getting a bit strained between me and the band uh once i mean carl you know, you, you, I can't answer for himself now, like I say, because we lost him last year. But once Cole got it, the idea in his head that something was going a different way, it, it ended up happening anyway. You know, um, 
and I, I, I went off on tour with uh, the Jim Jost's, uh, uh, sorry, the Jim Rose Circus Sideshow, if you remember that. Oh, yes. Show from, from the early, that was featured on, it was on Lollapalooza and stuff like that. It had like sort of followers and, and guys lifting up bits with piercings and stuff like that. And I came back off that tour and I got taken down the pub and uh, <laughs> told that was the end for me. So uh, I guess you were you a bit ambivalent about the end of the band? For not, not the end of the band, but your kind of exit or was it a bit of a shock? It was a kind of transitional period, really. I was a bit shocked, but it was going to come eventually. And um, I, I had realised that I was I was more interested in being a sound engineer than I was being a musician, to be honest. Yes. I, I don't miss playing. I've still got three bass guitars. One I've lent to one I lent to somebody about eight years ago, and he uses to play in EMF occasionally when he plays for EMF. I've got another bass upstairs, which is like a um, Didi Ramone signature bass. It's there more like um, just as something to to look at, really. Yes. Thought, yeah, I, I don't mean I I really enjoy doing sound, and I've you know my my career was much better as a sound engineer than it was ever going to be as a musician. So. So then, yeah. So what's the kind of just briefly what happens then when when the the, the you think right that's that's not going to sort of be my career this is going to be the career was it just straight has it been sound engineering ever since up to and beyond today if you well it was kind of it always ran parallel anyway i started doing sound in 1985 when i came over to portsmouth so it was it was always a it was going to be a fight as to to which would win you know obviously if we'd have made it if one of the many times we'd driven all the way up to the uh to Subterranea or the Pop Club in London and, and somebody, whoever it was supposed to be from whichever record label had turned up and and signed us, then, you know, we would have done it. But it, it was it was constant travelling and playing. We, I mean, we literally did to play to one man and a dog at, um, at the George Roby one night. The George Roby. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, classic. <laughs> God, yes, that must yeah, have felt, that must have felt like this isn't going to quite happen. No, and I, and and the trouble is, when you when you've been going for quite some time, as uh, you you kind of start. One of the worst things you can do as a band is 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 trying to start doing stuff in the vein of current current bands. Um, you know, once you get once you get to a certain level in a band. And uh, it just always felt like we would start to chase chase the trends a little bit with the way the music was going. Actually, strangely enough, after I left and or towards the end of of of, of when I left, was probably one of the better periods. And um, speaking to Keith and looking back at some of the other stuff, we we went back to writing songs that that we just wanted to write, and and there were some really really cracking songs in there, you know. But um. Yeah, it gets difficult because what they would have been going for, I think when they eventually split up, there was ten years. I think it must have been ten years. Yes, it was kind of eighty four to ninety five, which is you know quite a long period of time to sort of stick with something, you know, on anything. You know, unless it was kind of really happening and you were sort of going to record labels and doing tours around the place and releasing albums, but to to just yeah. keep on thinking. And also, the one thing that really happens with a lot of bands is that. Um, 
the musical scene changes, you know, and during that time, you know, you had that indie scene, which was kind of like epitomised by the sound of the Smiths and, you know, yeah. I don't know, the go-betweens. And then you had a bit of that, um, then then the world of dance started coming in. So you had that little bit kind of influence with the Soup Dragons and the Happy Mondays and yeah. Stone Roses. And then you had grunge and then Britpop. So, you know, in a way, like you said, about kind of trying to chase a scene, it's it's kind of, it could work, but it could also just be like, oh my God, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you, and you find there's only so many shows you can do in your in your hometown as well. Yes. You know, and there, was a lot, there was a few bands from that era that um, kind of got locked in the same sort of loop. There was uh, another band that originally called Emotion Industry that changed their name to the Firework Party. And they, once again, great songs, great people, great musicians, but just got locked in and locked in and locked in and stuff like that. And and they actually, um, they actually eventually gave up and just became a a, a, a um, covers band. And they now do weddings and parties <laughs> and stuff. And uh, yeah, as a as a band called Kojak's Revenge. Excellent. But, yeah, you know, it's just because they all wanted to keep in music, but there's only so so long, you know. And everybody gets some. Um, everybody ends up having families and kids and stuff like that. And you can't chase the dream when you've got families and kids. I've seen Portsmouth bands, you know, really great Portsmouth bands, like who actually did tour, still not quite make it because you know one member particularly um, had commitments back home, and, and nobody wants to give up a. A, a thriving sort of business to, uh, to to chase around the around the world and not do anything really. Yes. So, what's life like when you you know? Because obviously, you've played or, or worked with some fantastic bands. You know, Killing Joke, We Are Scientists, and Wolf Alice. So, it's, do you just kind of get a buzz from sort of providing you know being the sound engineer? engineer? Oh, there's there's. Well, I mean, I still get insanely nervous before shows. Even regardless of the size of it, I, I did a Steve Mason uh, show at the um, at Butlins at the weekend on the Shine On weekend, uh, yeah, and I haven't, mixed, I, I haven't mixed Steve for a while. There was no sound check, and it, you know it's you, I still get incredibly nervous. You, you can't rest on your laurels at all. Yes, and, and you know it's just, I mean, when even even if you're not the focus of attention. Um, Obviously, if it sounds awful, the the the, band, the, the audience aren't going to get anything out of it, regardless of how good the band are. So, you hope that you, you know you're somehow aiding the band to be as good as they are, sort of thing, you know. And and um, a couple of street shows I had in the summer, Glastonbury in particular, you know, the the atmosphere inside that John Peel tent was absolutely insane, you know. And you just hope that you're somehow part of that not just mike skinner ranting and raving you know what i mean so well yes it is a lot of pressure because if it because you only get noticed if it goes badly isn't it and, yeah you're, uh, you're only as good as your last gig is what yes. they call it it's a bit like the goalkeeper isn't it you know one mistake yeah. and uh, you, you know you're peter shilton in 1973 yeah. against yeah. poland and we'll always rem- and everyone else can make a mistake you know and no one's going to really but, remember it but as a Portsmouth reference, Calamity James, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I had a couple of howlers, but fortunately I've recovered from them. Um, but not too bad too recently. <laughs> yeah. 
But and yeah, it, I mean, on on you know, if you if I mean, some of the shows I've done, you know, when uh, the, there's like some some shows in my career that you you just can't, you know, the the excitement of it's as as good as being on the stage, you know, because you walk away from it and you go, well, I, I just made that sound like that, and that was, you know, yes, you know, um, one, you know, and and. and Every now and then you get people come up to you that are kind of not not like heroes, but you know you get you talk to somebody and or you you get some feedback online and stuff like that, and it it's better than you know it's better than uh, I know it's ego massaging, but it, it's better than anything I ever had as a as a bass player. So you know because it was normally your mates going, oh yeah, you were brilliant, weren't you? And you sort of going, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that means so, that means nothing coming from you. But as a complete stranger, it's probably like. Yeah, I mean, you know, I one one day in, uh, at the Brighton Centre, I was only mixing the the opening band for a for a, for a show at the Brighton Centre, and a German guy came up and asked me for my autograph, and I was like, well. I'm not in the band. He went, yeah, I know, and I went, I'm, I, when I don't even work for the the main band, you know, it's just the opening band. He went. Yeah, but I like the sound so much. Excellent. Can, you sign, can you sign my ticket? You know, like, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever signed an autograph as a bass player. No, this is true. God, that's good. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah. it, it is an amazing thing to keep in the music world because a lot of bands, as you probably realise, don't, you know, I think there's a kind of a, a difficult relationship with music after being in a band and then having to do something completely different. Whereas to be able to still be yeah. part of that creative industry is is actually makes you you know i don't know yeah. it, it doesn't feel like like god that five years was a waste but it was more like yeah. well it gave me the ground into learn what to do to then make a career of it a, a, a lot a lot of ex-band members are, are still roadies now yes yeah and, and i can't remember who the guitar the guitar tech for kurt cobain was but he was somebody who wasn't... that that was uh big john from the exploited that's it there you yeah. go. And also, yeah. oh yes, goodbye, Mr. McKenzie. That's it. Isn't it? McKenzie, yeah, yeah. And you think Which, I, I saw them in at Portsmouth, Portsmouth Poly back in the day? Yes, and that's that is quite amazing. Just lastly, what would you what would you say to a and your eighteen year old or an eighteen year old self who was kind of starting out, kind of thinking about the creative world that might be rock and roll? <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> oh no no um i I would say the only thing i would have said to myself in the early days was i i I should have learned how to play bass better so as i could slot into any band yes um whereas i you know I, i i'm not technically proficient enough to to jam and do things with people i always struggled a bit I was never confident at it. So. And do you and do you sort of have keep in have you ever kept in touch with any of the original uh, the members of the Cylons or even? I, I'm I'm the godfather to the to the singer's daughter. Fantastic. Yeah, and I still we still go out regularly. Um, the ad nauseum guys have uh, kind of. Some of them are still playing. One actually, one of them's just read the singer's actually just about to release a a, a new EP. He sang for a, a kind of futuristic death metal or thrash metal band called Decimator after after he left um, 
ad nauseum and they're about to just do a do a new um album he, he goes under the moniker of lord mad dog <laughs> yeah, i mean he's he's i mean i'm 54 now i think barry's four years older than me and he's still one of the most well-built attractive looking men you could ever bloody meet <laughs> That's impressive. I thought you were going to say it. You wouldn't believe it. But no, that's good. Well, I think John, I mean, I have to say, John Robb looks like he does work out oh, as well. Yeah, John Robb's incredible. And what <laughs> what an engine that man has, you know. Yes. You know, his, uh, and his joy for it and his, his, um, his, his, you know, his lust for stuff. I mean, he, yeah, he's, you know, he pops up everywhere, John. Doesn't he? I saw him being interviewed about polystyrene on, uh, on the one show. He is, he's everywhere, you know, he is, you know, he's amazing. He's always very approachable as well, but he's always out there. Yeah, no, he, he, I mean, he's a big fan of, he's a big champion of Killing Joke. Yes. Uh, I think he came down to the Merry Chain shows we did on the Psycho Candy um, tour in 2014. Definitely came down for that, so. Excellent. Yeah. Well, John, this has been fantastic well thank you ever so much i know it took a bit of time to get together but it's always yeah. good and you know it's just kind of one of those projects that you know i keep working on thinking god yes the portsmouth band so i, I sort of managed to find a yeah, member think... of the red letter day and then obviously i think oh yes the cylons i know that you were a bit more in the latter years but um yeah yeah i mean like i say of the people that are really present now, i mean that are still around keith would have would be the the man to talk to but he's, he's quite reticent to really talk about stuff he has got a new project though that he's just actually been signed he's got he's got a new project called seat man oh. seat man separator which is um if you if you look on uh, if you look on uh twitter i think he's keith seat man right keith. and he he was doing stuff with jack from the cylons it's more electronic sort of like you know, he sits on sits at home on his computer, bleeping and beeping and stuff like that. Um, it, is, it sounds like you some sort of life support system. Yeah, but I mean, there's, I mean, there was, I mean, there really was a great scene back then. Some yes. bands, you know, like I say, Paul Groovy. So, what's happened to Paul Groovy? Is uh, he... They're back going. Paul Groovy and the Pop Art Experience are playing shows as we speak. Yes. And does it make you smile when you do? I mean, obviously, Glastonbury's a little bit different and everyone, you probably keep going around thinking, God, they all look so young and think, no, this is this is the age you come to Glastonbury. I'm just getting older. But then Shine shine Weekends must feel, you know, Yeah, I mean, that, there were some people that, were, that yeah, looked as rough as me there. The other <laughs> but it's great, you know. I mean, and that's what's great about it mixing bands like the Bunnymen and mixing you know stuff like that it's people of my age that are still massively into music and are still you know still up for it and still very packed there's so many people of my age that are still massively passionate about music which is great yes and I think it's gonna you know hopefully keep it going I and to to be fair you know I mean everybody goes you know I, what really annoys me is like you get a lot of things on facebook like oh look at this bill at reading and you know look at what was at reading but if what was at reading now was at you know reading then you know sort of like oh look at what we had in the 90s you know so take 92 being that sunday being nirvana mud honey 
screaming trees and stuff like that. You're not. You're just not going to have that now, and you're not. You've not got the audience for it either. You know. Yes. People want to go and see Stormzy and loads of grime stuff, and that's what the kids are into. And if that's what sort of kids are into, then you know, I'm, I'm quite happy for that as long as they're listening to something and keeping something alive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit tragic, you know, and embarrassing when people get oh, this is no good music now. You think, oh my god, that's you know, because I remember when I was you know in that period of the eighties. My boss, who was who'd been really, you know, obsessed about the whole '60s and seen all the bands and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, just thought, oh god, the '80s, you know, you know, I was trying to blame that stuff from the '80s, and he, you know, was like really scathing about it. And but now, you know, it's like you kind of work out, oh yes, of course, the music you listen to at a certain age, and you, you, you know, you listen to that record all day for months on end, you know, it just becomes something else, doesn't it? But you can't yeah. keep that going. I don't think but, until you, unless you're John Peel, until you, you know, because it yeah. just is impossible. So, you know, what you're into at that age is what you're into. It's a bit like the audience at Glastonbury look young, but you think, no, that's the age you go to Glastonbury. It's just older people but, now go. But I mean, every, every, every decade's got its bit of awful music and it's got its amazing music. And and really, if you think if you think about it, if if John Peel was alive today, back, you know, back in the 80s, he did sessions with tools you can trust and tools you can trust made a, an absolutely awful racket and could barely play. In fact, there was a really great documentary. I even sticks in my head about tools you can trust, um, doing their pill session. And when they turned up to play Portsmouth Polly, it was like basses with one and or two strings on and stuff like that. And it was, it was kind of quite appalling, but it's the stuff Peely liked. And if he was alive today, he would be playing grime and, and dubstep and stuff like that because that is 2019's equivalent kind of of what tools you can trust would have been in, in 1984, you know. Yes. But, but you, and also you've got to remember that when he started playing punk, the people who had been listening to him for a few years who were into the Grateful Dead and Jackson Brown were thinking, yeah. God, he's lost it, he's complete, and now he's playing reggae, and now he's playing rap, you know. I remember yeah. when he started playing Public Enemy and LL Cool J and T La Rock mm. and all those DJ cheese. Um, I mean, people, you know, there was a kind of a bit of an undercurrent, which was kind of racist. Um, you, know, like, you know, like, well, that's it, you know, he's lost it, you know, he's no longer but it's like no you know those people now are probably 25 and the people who were 18 were like oh yeah I like I remember this you know I liked the Smiths a lot when I was growing up but I know a lot of people just couldn't bear them you know they I, I, I mean I love them I, I still love Morrissey's music but I cannot stand him as a man obviously uh, yes quite <laughs> it's like yeah. a tricky one but um, yeah. yeah you know I just I just think you know Peel used to play all that banging happy house music which some of it was just like I just thought uh, you know it was quite funny because you know he played that variety of music and you know he'd play an African track and reggae track and a thrash metal track and then a happy house track you know it was kind of bonkers really but it was good you know you didn't have to sort of sit there for three hours here in happy house but I do remember him playing a track which was the version of Red Balloons thinking god this is actually quite nice but mainly because it was the Red Balloons one by Nana so uh, (laughs) yeah I mean I I, I, I remember him. he came down and did a, a um, uh, what do you call it, a graduate graduation? Oh, yeah, the John Peel Roadshow. Well, he did the John Peel Roadshow. We did one on the Isle of Wight, very early early doors. We did one at um, Ride Pavilion in 1984 or 83 or something. But then we regularly have him at Portsmouth Polly as a, on, on, his, on the Friday 
disco on his John Peel Roadshow, but he, he came, we booked him to do the graduation ball, you know, so there was all people there with, with ball gowns and stuff like that. And, and you know, he obviously opened up the set with Napalm Death, you know. <laughs> Yes, quite. Street noise terror and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. It's been nice to have a chinwag, actually. But I mean, honestly, look at that against the tides um, compilation. Yeah, I can't even remember who was on it now. Well, there's um, just roughly there's there's people the the bridesmaids, rebel truce, the glad house, emotion industry, twelve eighty eight cartel, the script. All We Desire, The Crane Sound System, House of Cards, E. Colon, The King Beats, Radical Dance, The 15th, yeah. Flag for Surprise, Secret Corners, Treble X, Picture Book, Uncle Ian, Dark Ravens of Dance. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, Dark Ravens of Dance were a, were a goth band. They, um, they were just a, a four-piece? No, three, five, no, yeah, no, so my mate played bass for them and Polly from another friend from the Isle of Wight played keyboards and Pete the guitarist and Marcus yeah yeah um it's a classic compilation really isn't it yeah Re- Rebel Truce turned into a, a band that was called Six Gun Sound and they just you know were like a clash band 1288 Cartel is Simon Hartfield who's Simon Point and who eventually played bass was the last bass player for the Cylons um Emotion industry, as I mentioned earlier, turned into firework party, and now they're a, a, um, yeah. a, a you know, they're, they're Kojak, Kojak's revenge, and they're just doing night. But, and the cranes? Cranes, I, I saw Jim Shaw the other day. He's still he's still doing bits and bobs. Um, they were the only band that really, probably went on tour, and made it from Portsmouth. Yeah, as far as you could make it from Portsmouth. Obviously, the Cure took them around America on a couple of a couple of arena tours they always toured america they were massive friends with the young gods did quite a few tours with with young gods i think they were on play against sam for a while so nice the, all the all the ben lux or, yeah. sort of yeah jim's still doing stuff i'm not entirely sure what ellie's up to or or whether she's um able yeah. to do stuff yes. uh the, the current drummer from the cranes has got a really good new band called curl John Callender. Um, there's another really good um, 80s sounding band from Portsmouth called Fake Empire. You can check them out online. They're they're really good. I've got to, they remind me a little bit of. Um, uh, I did Remembrance Day. Um, B movie a little bit in his vocal, but you know it's just stuff still going on. Yes, um, well, absolutely. Yeah, it, I mean, it, 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 there are some great bands in Portsmouth. But nobody ever allows them to escape. <laughs> well, actually, it's the same with Norwich. Often people come to Norwich to go to the UEA, or, yeah. or, and and then they don't leave because they always think, "I'll oh, just go. It's a bit sleepy, and you know, it's a bit. It'll be nice. It's quite cozy." But then, yeah. quite like it's big enough to be interesting, but not too big that you get lost in it. And it's, you know, and there's like a lot. Of, you know, a lot of people do stay, or people go away. You know, they sort of do their thing. They think, "Right, I'm definitely going to go to London." They spend a year in London, think. Fuck that! I'm coming back again. Well, yeah. I mean, do you, do you know a bloke called David Gray that used to do the merch quite a lot at, um, at, at the waterfront? No. He ended up he ended up doing stuff with um, Ed Sheeran for a while, but he's he's still he's still doing bits and bobs. Um, 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. You should, well, Sean, the uh, the keyboard player who plays um, trumpet as well with Edwin Collins. I think he's a. I think he's a. Um, so is Andy Hackett, who um, who um, uh, was in. They were both in the Rocking Birds together, and they're now. I mean, Hackett's been playing guitar oh, yeah. for for quite some time now. He used to have a massive music shop in Islington. They were talking about some. I oh, found it on on YouTube. There's like some. It's like some like uh, Norfolk for Africa or something like that benefit gig. Which had like the Farmers Boys and and loads of something on in the eighties and stuff, and I was I was remembering yeah, Farmers Boys. Oh, so serious drinking was it? Yeah. Did they do Pillars of Society. No, I don't think so. Uh, serious. What was Serious Drinking's song? Big song. Was it Love on the Terrace? Love on the Terraces. That's it. Yeah. Yes. Love on the Terraces. Um, and then Popular Voice. Do you remember a band called Popular Voice? No. Rich. Yeah. In fact, I because I, I, this made everybody laugh because I actually had the cover of Whatever Is He Like by the Farmers Boys painted on the back of my leather jacket at one point. My God, you were a big fan, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, would, I, I, would, I had um, a, a friend at school uh, who still plays in bits and bobs bands on the Isle of Wight now. Um, if it wasn't for him... He, he educated me at about the age of 14 about music totally. And if it wasn't for him, I'd probably still be listening to Alvis and Shawaddy Waddy now. Nice. But he introduced me to John Peel. He introduced me to everything. In fact, a lot of the singles I've got upstairs, pretty much, probably I got from him. I wouldn't have known anything about Human League and Cabaret Voltaire and or, or anything like that, all the early electro stuff that we were into. No. If it, I hadn't heard about any of that, you know, and so yes. early there's all that sort of thing. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Well, I'm really, I've never met such a big Farmer's Boys fan, actually. That's quite. <laughs> what, that didn't, didn't live in, in, uh, in Wyndham? Wyndham. Wyndham. Why Mundum? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think they, they were kind of a bit of a, I wouldn't say complete novelty, but they was, you know, they, their big one was the Cliff Richard, you're going to find me in the yeah. country, aren't you? And they did a few other ones, Few Wow or something like that, and yeah. uh, Gone Fishing or something. So, um, yeah. Yeah. But, but I think they never quite got over the, was it a drum machine they had, wasn't it? And they, yeah. what, what was the, um, what was the, like, the, the label that was up that way at the time? Bax Records. Backs, that's it, yeah. Part of the yeah. cartel, yeah. So it was kind of on yeah. backs, and yeah, it was all kind of quite optimistic. But they, they never again. They didn't quite do it. And I think when bands like the Smiths appeared, it kind of knocked out a lot of. Yeah. It just kind of made it. You know, I don't even the Echo and the Bunnymen almost. You know, they had that kind of they're the band, and then suddenly, they obviously did their thing, and then they had a bit of a break, and the Smiths comes along, and it's like, okay, this is now what the you know, and the the go betweens and bands like that. But yeah. the Smiths were just such a, a colossal force, really. Everything about that eighty three to eighty seven, yeah. you know, they just took it really. And yeah, I, I was I was lucky enough to see them at Brighton University on in the early days. We we. Actually, you took a trip down from the Isle of Wight and saw them, you know, on the on the first album with the gladiolis in the back pocket and the hearing aid and everything. Yeah, and one and it just seemed to sort of 
knock a, you know a lot of bands out and i think when they finished then you know then the dance scene started so but by yeah. then bands like you know the farmers boys could never quite then get that next never they were never going to compete there was I'm, I'm trying to think who was around in those days you'd have the nightingales you'd have the Red Wedge tour was was quite interesting. Well, you had the yeah, you had the Redskins who were huge, and then you had the June Brides, and they yeah. were quite big, but they yeah, they never quite did it either, really. And then you had a lot of bands from Scotland as well, like the Shop Assistants and um, the Orchids and yeah. various like they were quite indie, weren't they? So, well, I mean, there was all that postcard sort of stuff was all. And then yeah, and then and then you had Prefab Sprout and the Red Guitars, and then you had the Fall. And then you had sort of the wild swans and the lotus eaters. So there was there were kind of bands. There were kind of little scenes, but there was a lot in the Midlands because you had the very things and the fuzz box, and yeah, um, yeah. you know there was quite a big big contingency. Kind there. of it kind of got a bit soft for a while, didn't it? When you think about stuff like Scritti Politti and all that. So yeah, well they kind of crossed over onto top of the pops, and they and then yeah. so that. But the Red Wedge tour and and the whole stuff with uh, the Billy Bragg and. Yeah, the red the Redskins album, neither Moscow or Washington, was huge at the time. So um, yeah. they they sort of produced an amazing sound, but everything kind of then crashed around eighty seven, eighty eight, didn't it? And yeah. and that kind of cleared everything out, and it all started it again. But apart from Billy Bragg, nothing ever went mainstream, did it? No. Nothing ever broke through. I don't think I'd ever seen Redskins or Three Johns or anything like that on top of the pops. No, but then you you know certain bands like you know the Happy Mondays managed to slip into dance, and so did the the kind of yeah. Soup Dragons did as well, and 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 obviously the Stone Roses. But then you had that grunge scene, all the Pixies that came along, didn't they? And Sonic Youth and the Buttholes, and that yeah. kind of took it over, and obviously. Nirvana, and then you had you know Britpop that sort of appeared in back ninety three to ninety yeah for a few years. So yeah, yeah, that that whole period was quite fascinating. Really, I suppose actually Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, did start as quite a little indie band, and then sort of headlined Glastonbury in ninety two, which was quite yeah amazing. yeah they did incredibly well. Yeah. Um, I, I remember the first time I saw well, first time I even knew who I didn't even know who Carter were, and I got booked to work a show. At the Astoria up in London, I used to do stage security, and um, yeah, <laughs> and like John Fatbeast just came out and covered the whole of us in the barrier with tomato ketchup flavored crisps, and ordered the audience to uh, bombard us, you know, like with with uh, crowd surfing and stage diving, and I was like, what the what the heck is this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first time I, the first time the Oasis played, Oasis played the Wedgwood Rooms. I, I turned up to work, and I was like, "Oh yeah, Monday night, another indie band. Here we go." You know, <laughs> and this absolute storm came through the front door. You know, with um, obviously Liam and Noel and the rest, and actually managed by a guy that that, that managed the Portsmouth band uh, previously. Um, called some kind of wonderful um, ended up being Oasis's manager, and uh, subsequently ended up being the manager of another uh, of the band that some kind of wonderful turned into called Pusher Man, and um, yeah, that was that was pretty mad. So I was just like, well, yeah. So I've seen it. I've I've been quite lucky. I've seen a few things. I I was I worked the um, the day that grunge broke it's technically the, they call it the day that grunge broke at the Astoria which was the Lame Fest show which is Mud Honey Tad and Nirvana oh yes 
yeah that was uh you know in, uh, that was a pretty crazy one um in fact somebody uh sent me some photos the other day of myself and him in the barrier at the astoria from 1991 with uh with kurt actually yes well i i remember because on that when they were doing bleach it was tad and nirvana yeah and, doing... and they just came round and did the art center but then they came back a few years later with Nevermind. yeah yeah that was... and that was quite an interest that was kind of you know just last year that was quite an interesting story because the guy who used to do the art center indie nights at the art yeah the art center clubs uh, the Wild Club, it was called. He decided to start booking things with the waterfront, and he put on Nirvana for that kind of tour. And unfortunately, this was an unbelievable story, really, because he he lost the fortune because the album hadn't really come out. If mm. he if it had been three months later, he would have sold out yeah. and made a lot of money. Well, he'd have yeah. made money, but he lost the fortune, and I don't think he ever kind of recovered no. himself from that. But he he didn't watch the kid because I think he sat by the river and just felt depressed because because he I think he'd realised I think someone like L L Seven was supporting that tour. Yeah, yeah, there was. Uh, there was the, yeah the first tours had Nirvana swap in yeah and it, and then they met up with Mud Honey at the Astoria, which is when the the Lame Fest thing happened. They came back round with Al Seven, and then I can't remember who supported them at the Astoria on the on the fifth of November. But then they came back and their last, pretty much their last UK indoor show was Kilburn National on December the fifth. 91 i think it was yes. and that's captain america and shown a knife and that was an insane absolutely insane show because i used to work for a company called riverman right who now, who now manage placebo and don't do much else but they promoted all of the all of the big um shows up in up in you know all the all the, all the sub pop shows and we so we, we did a lot of stuff at the astoria yulu underworld I've got a, a load of sticky passes left from all those days. You know, it's crazy, crazy, crazy times, really, because we used to get paid to go and work gigs. Or we would have quite happily paid to go to see. You know, it was it was incredible. I used to take some friends up from Portsmouth when we used to work these shows in London. And yeah, yes, well, right. see, I've had a very varied career. I've done pretty much most most things i've never promoted i wouldn't do that and i wouldn't manage a band <laughs> so dealing with record companies and dealing with accountants and well it's bad enough being a tour manager dealing with accountants but you know dealing with yeah yeah it's tricky well look this has been amazing well thank you ever so much my sorry i've digressed from the silons <laughs> no, it was kind of interesting sort of going oh, yeah, yeah you know. i mean you know by all means track track Keith down if, if uh, you might not get anything out of him he's uh, no he's, fair you know, um, like I say unfortunately we lost Carl this time last year so um, to cancer unfortunately it was a bit of a, bit of a rubbish winter last last winter losing somebody from both of my bands really but, yes um, not good not good at all but yes but, anyway John thank you ever so much and I'll keep in touch yeah and, and definitely I mean if you want to ping me over a, a, a another message, I can I can kind of give you a little potted history of what I think might have happened to to some, quite a few of the bands on Against the Tide anyway. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, I will definitely try and find 
a member of the Cranes and Paul Groovy, actually. Is that? Um... Yeah, yeah. Jim Shaw's very reclusive, and Ali's not amazingly um, forthcoming either. Um, yeah. So that's who who was really there at the time. I mean, they went through quite a few incarnations before they finished. The, the main kind of incarnation uh, with time of supporting the cure and stuff like that um the the guitarist now lives in norway um and he was also he was also in uncle ian as well mark frankham yeah and he also uh bizarrely enough when he was at the art college made a load of videos for the cardiacs him and, him and nick from uncle ian um made all the the, the early videos for the cardiacs so uh yeah it's, it's a very small it's a very small world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, it's strange. But the creative industries was definitely happening. Right, look, well, thank you, John, and I'll keep in touch. And um, Yeah, definitely. Pleasure. It's been good. But yeah, well, I mean, I mean I'm quite... I, I, once I get going, I'm all right. Um, I'm a bit reticent to do stuff until I start doing it. I don't know why I'm terrible at it, but, <laughs> you know, and I, I might... I, I hope I don't come over as a terrible bore. I'm, I can only... I can only talk about what i've done really <laughs> yeah no it's been fantastic no it's been good but yeah sorry i don't know i mean i mean as going back to the silence we did have some cracking times i mean the times we supported the fall were were, were really great and you know we, we did some really good supports but mainly it was going up and down the a3 playing to 20 people in a in a club in london hoping the man from london records was going to turn up so yes yeah. <laughs> never mind did old portsmouth Anyway, look, thank you ever so much and have a fantastic evening. Nice one. No worries. Thank you. Take care, though. Bye. Cheers. Bye.